Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Word Balloon, the comic book conversation show. John Suntress here. Uh, two episodes actually dropping today. Uh, if you're uh, not aware, I also talked to uh, Jason Sachs, who uh, co-wrote the American Comic Book Chronicles, the 90s book from Tomorrow's. A great look back at the 90s. Very interesting conversation. But the conversation, of course, you've downloaded is one with Dennis Kitchen. The great Dennis Kitchen of Kitchen Sink Press, the underground cartoonist who uh, then uh, created Kitchen Sink Press to be an underground publisher, and fascinating career. Uh, really interesting look at underground comics uh, that started in the late 60s through the 70s, all the different twists and turns, and so many parallels to today's creator-owned comics. And it's pretty interesting to hear how Dennis uh, treated the writers and artists that uh, would submit comics uh, to him, other underground cartoonists, and uh, it's it's great. It's a really, really interesting conversation about how uh, the books were distributed and uh, the various adventures that Dennis found himself both in in cartooning and publishing. Of course, he was uh, great friends with Will Eisner and uh, keeper of the Eisner estate and Will's literary agent for many years. We also talk a bit about uh, his uh, written uh, biography of Al Camp, the little Abner creator, who uh, sadly uh, was a bit of a scandal even in the 70s that a lot of people in the Me Too era can certainly relate to. Uh, pretty interesting stuff about uh, the cartoonist behind Lil Abner, a very fascinating biography that Dennis co-wrote. I urge you to check that out as well as Dennis's comics and various publications through Kitchen Sink Press. Uh, but a great conversation today with Dennis Kitchen on today's Word Balloon. It's all brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners. Thank you, League, for your support. Uh, great response uh, and uh, true great support here in uh, 2019 from the league. A lot of people are uh, helping me out while I uh, get over my illness and uh, are uh, contributing to Word Balloon, subscribing to Word Balloon via Patreon. If you want to do that, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon or go to the Patreon ad at the front page of wordballoon.com. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. Word Balloon is also brought to you by Aftershock Comics the industry's fastest-growing independent publishing company, promoting both new and established comic audiences to read dangerously. They're claiming 2019 is the year of reading dangerously. As the publisher of many of the most talked-about independent titles of the past few years, including Animosity, A Walk Through Hell, Dark Ark, and Baby Teeth, Aftershock will push the envelope further in 2019 with new releases and ongoing series that continue to thrill and challenge both imaginations and sensibilities. Working with top writers and artists and some of the brightest new stars in the creative community, some of the new 2019 titles coming along from Aftershock, Stronghold with Phil Hester and Ryan Kelly, Oberon, a new supernatural series by Ryan Parrott, Dark Red from our buddy Tim Seeley, which centers on a vampire living in rural America, Out of the Blue and Horde, to name only a few. Those will cut across genres to take readers far beyond their comfort zones. Now, in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking to some of these Aftershock creators about their books, but you don't have to wait. Check out full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. All right, without further ado, let's get into our conversation now with Dennis Kitchen, talking about the history of underground comics on Word Balloon. Dennis Kitchen, what a pleasure. Welcome to Word Balloon. Uh, longtime fan of your cartooning. Uh, your representation of, of various creators, and uh, and also, of course, Kitchen Sink Press. So welcome. Well, thank you, John. Happy to talk. You know, I, I want to start at the beginning and the underground uh, comic movement. I know you uh, wrote a history of uh, the underground comics, and uh, I'm I'm interested in the start. You're, you're a Milwaukee guy. I'm a Chicago guy. 
Yeah. So and and truthfully, I um, <clears throat> I worked at WXRT Radio in Chicago, and that was a station pretty much founded by hippies, honestly. And oh, so, was it for real? Yeah. And uh, and I uh, so I'm so I'm really interested. And and if this is these are naive questions, you'll forgive me. But the the um, the underground comic movement. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, am I right? Mostly like being sold in like head shops and, and the like back in the day. Yeah, no, well, well into the ninety percentile. Um, you got to remember the undergrounds preceded what we call the direct market system mm-hmm. with specialty comic shops. So in those days, there was no uh, no alternative really. Uh, newsstand distributors wouldn't touch us because sure. we were too uh, too wild for them. And honestly, we didn't trust them. They had a reputation for being kind of mafioso. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but head shops were kindred spirits. They were happy to have us, and vice versa. So, did you have to like go on your own to like get the stores? Yeah, to carry your yeah. Books? There was no mailing list I could buy. Wow. I had the advantage of uh, I co-founded uh, the uh, underground uh, weekly newspaper in Milwaukee called the Bugle. Okay. And. Uh, and uh, the Bugle was part of a thing called the Underground Press Syndicate, uh, UPS. And they gathered a list of all of the, uh, you know, again, kindred spirits who were putting out uh, papers all over North America. And most of the papers did an exchange program. And so when those came in to the Bugle staff, some of the people would, you know, glance at them, but there was an awful lot. I, I would tend to save them, and then uh, I would watch for ads uh, for head shops in all the other cities and slowly <laughs> gather together a mailing list. So it started modestly, and it grew. And then we started, of course, advertising in our own comics for retailers, and uh, before we knew it, we had a, a pretty good network. Um and as rickety as it might sound, uh, we sold some pretty strong numbers in those days, numbers a lot of publishers would be happy to have now. You know, honestly, I was wondering that because, again, there's this, like, handmade and hand-delivered aspect of, of what I saw as far as, you know, learning about the underground comic movement. And uh, it is reassuring to hear that, uh, like, were you, were you able to be a full-time cartoonist? Well, I was a cartoonist until I decided to become a publisher by default. <laughs> it's impossible to be both. I, I soon became a full-time publisher and a part-time cartoonist because the business just demanded a lot of attention. And uh, even though early on I got a partner and I had employees, there still wasn't really time to draw as much as I'd like. So I had to sacrifice a good part of my art career in order to be a publisher but the thing is, nobody else really wanted to be a publisher. There were, you know, there were there were four companies of any size putting out undergrounds, and the other three, well, two of them were run by business guys, hippie business guys. Okay. The fourth <laughs> one was technically started by Gilbert Shelton. Okay. But he, he was lucky that he had uh, at least three partners who ran the business side. So Gilbert continued to draw. While he was a part owner of Ripoff Press, I didn't have that luxury. Okay. You know, honestly, 
I give you a lot of credit because I know creatives, and I and I say this myself as a as a semi creative. You know, obviously, we want to do the fun stuff. We don't want to we don't want to do the business, and that's exactly. in every yeah every <laughs> every uh, level of creativity. So no, I I give you a lot of credit for for starting Kitchen Sink Press, and um, you know, I, I so. I, but you know something? Before we get into Kitchen Sink Press, I am interested because I saw too that a lot of your work would uh, wind up in um, college newspapers and other underground newspapers as well. So was it kind of hand in hand with the comics? Um, it was. I uh, I had uh, the idea that well, first of all, the Bugle, the, the paper I mentioned earlier yeah. that I started. Um, I art directed it, and I knew at least four other good cartoonists in Milwaukee, and I basically got them to do a weekly strip along with me. And it seemed a shame that they would only appear in the Milwaukee area. And so we created a thing we called the Krupp Syndicate, and we sent out a brochure to um, a list of college newspapers and the other undergrounds, and we got about 50 or so to sign up. So that was the way to basically assure the artists they'd get something. Otherwise, they were working for free. The problem is, as you might anticipate, um, it was hard to get a lot of the underground papers to actually pay. They were happy to get it, but they they were generally marginal enterprises. And the college papers we expected to be solid um, financially just turned out to be often run by flakes who uh, had a high turnover rate. And so we had less than 50% of the customers actually paying. And so at a certain point, I think we did it for a year or so, and then we just said, this is ridiculous, and we just killed it because uh, (laughs) the business model was – was built on a flawed assumption that our customers were were reliable and solvent. I understand. I can, you know, I'm, I'm hearing a, a, a kind of Cheech and Chunk kind of conversation. Yeah, man, checks in the mail. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Wow. Well, all right. On to Kitchen Sink Press. So, yeah, you know, uh, you you become a publisher, and was it really easy to uh, go to the Richard Corbin's, our crumbs, and? Uh, you know the like of that generation to uh, to come in and uh, and have their work uh, published by you. Well, easy is a relative term. Um, most of the guys I published were friends who I I got to know early on or developed relationships with. I I tried in as many cases as possible to, to see them firsthand. Crum early on traveled to Milwaukee because he was buddies with Jay Lynch and Skip Williamson. Okay. The, the, the Chicago-based guys who were sure. doing Bijou. And uh, neither he nor Jay drove cars, but they took a bus up, and uh, I uh, I gave him a tour, and uh, it, it helped in Crumb's case that I had a jukebox in my apartment that played 78 RPM records. Oh, that's, <laughs> I know. That, I know. that's his passion. Indeed. You know? Absolutely. That's awesome. <laughs> so, so you find things in common that extend beyond just loving comics, and... Um, so, yeah, I, I I wrote a lot of letters back then because, of course, again, this is pre-internet and sure. uh, telephone calls were expensive. Long distance was like a, a buck a minute, as I recall. So, yeah. Yeah. so nearly everything was conducted via snail mail. And um, so things didn't happen as fast as they might today, but they happened. And... Um, 
The important thing was to set up an economic system that was uh, fair and that attracted talent. And so uh, early on, I treated comics the way a literary publisher would treat authors. You get a royalty, you get an advance, basically, and the more the book sells, the more the cartoonist would make. And likewise, if uh, by chance uh, there was a European publisher that wanted to translate it, anything like that, we had a, a way of dealing with it fairly. And I learned my lesson from observing, as best I could, the the so-called role models of Marvel and DC and Archie and the existing major companies, because they did everything wrong as far as we were concerned. Uh, They kept all the art. They kept the copyrights. They kept nearly all the money. They'd pay a flat rate, and then it was, you know, goodbye, Charlie. And so uh, part of the whole hippie revolution... so you got to keep in mind, John, that back in the old days, uh, we had to do almost everything by snail mail. It was certainly the, the pre-internet era, and even uh, telephone calls were pretty expensive then. I think long distance was about a, a buck a minute. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would reach out to artists uh, typically um, by mail, and we would correspond. Um, I had no idea... Uh, you know, if you would ask me to count how many letters I was writing, but my papers went to Columbia University a couple of years ago, and they counted 65,000 letters. Jesus, so, wow. So uh, I was typing away, and uh, <laughs> it would have helped if I had, had ever taken a typing uh, class, but I didn't. So I was basically uh, a, a two-fingered uh, terror. Um, <laughs> sure. <clears throat> but it's... things got done. Things, things did get done. It's, it, I think it's reassuring that uh, the business is so cyclical because I, I have friends that have made independent comics and they publish, they self-published. Uh, now they are going to the direct market. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're pretty much hand-selling, and now there are lists and things, and certainly the Internet is a big help. But it really doesn't sound that different uh, with uh, what you know creator-owned people that are self-publishing have to go through today. And uh, yeah, I mean, tell tell me the differences because I know you get very involved, uh, and certainly did uh, you know in your years of uh, uh, we'll get to the comic book legal defense fund. But yeah, tell me about that. The the differences you see in today's uh, creator owned self publishing kind of world. Well, the main difference is um, back then it was um, a lot less competition. Sure. Today, today the market is pretty flooded, and that comes from a good thing, which is comics and graphic novels have become accepted as a, as really a, a, now a mainstream form of communication. It's it's part of the world of literature that I couldn't have ever been sure would happen. You walk into a Barnes and Noble now, and you'll see a whole section of graphic novels, um, just like you would in any other category. When I was starting out. That was an impossible dream, so that's why we were forced to work with head shops, and the the format was the the, the floppy comic book format for the most part. Mm-hmm. So uh, it, the parallel, though, is that for any independent artist who's not doing a superhero-type material for the mainstream, you really have to hustle, and there's no easy way to get around it. And um, so small press is small press. It's uh, really, honestly, I, the, I love hearing about uh, the way it worked back then. Was there, 
Were there any sort of, if not conventions, any sort of happenings? Because I would think the kind of art that you guys were doing would certainly fit into like the music culture or something like that. So were there, beyond actually like meeting the creators that you did, you know, whether you traveled to their cities or they came to your city, you know, in Milwaukee and stuff. Yeah, was, were there any gatherings of, of uh, underground creators? There were, there were uh, two or three that were held in uh, Berkeley in, uh, I think, 1973, 74, maybe 75, uh, that were dedicated uh, 100% to undergrounds. So th- that was the uh, the comics <laughs> Woodstock of, of its day. Sure, and relatively small affairs, but they did. It was a, a gathering of the tribe, so to speak. <laughs> did but, you bring? Uh, did you bring your books? And and I mean, did you? Do, oh, sure. Did sure, you do? Sc- yeah, obviously you'd hand sell, but panels. Also, and, oh, did panels? Yeah. Okay. Did you sketch yeah. as well? Would you guys do sketches for fans? Yeah, there was even Harvey Kurtzman, the creator of Mad, was a guest at one, and he introduced us to a thing. In French, they call it tac tac which is a very large jam where you take a, imagine a piece of paper about 10 feet high by, I don't know, 15 feet wide, and it's tacked up, and then every artist gets a, basically a, a marker, and you just start drawing and riffing off of each other, and uh, so... Something like that was a sure. kind of a spontaneous, fun thing that you wouldn't otherwise have a chance to participate in. Um, but for the most part, uh, outside of uh, the, the the Berkeley events, uh, no, we would meet at uh, to the degree there were other conventions. Remember, they were far far less frequent in those sure. days. You had a big one in New York and San Diego early on, and Chicago. But now, you know, they're all over God's creation, and, uh, and even in, in relatively small towns and uh, and overseas. Uh, so they've kind of lost the, you know, the, 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 I would say, the special nature of when you'd wait for one almost a year, maybe. And uh, regionally, you might only have one big one in a year. I remember being a kid and seeing the ads for the Chicago conventions when, like you said, it was there were only like really three big ones for the superhero fair. But um, I, you know, you mentioned that obviously your stuff sold uh, outside of the United States in Europe and the like. Um, so how were underground comics received in these other countries? Well, certainly Canada was a given, but most of Europe was a strong market too, um, and uh, in general. They were very well received. The only problem we had was occasionally we'd have problems with customs agents who would seize packages, and that was always a risk because uh, someone might claim they were obscene or otherwise yeah. objectionable. Um, even uh, we we also shipped to Australia, New Zealand, basically uh, any countries that spoke English or had a, a significant number of. <clears throat> the population that spoke English. Germany was a big importer, France, Spain. Okay. That's so, amazing. Uh, yeah. It was great, and it augmented uh, sales. And uh, there were burgeoning underground comics movements happening in some of those countries as well. So I think we helped feed that frenzy and, and uh, vice versa. Uh, the French were the most successful, the group that started Metal Herland which uh, in the U.S. became known as heavy metal. Yep. They were, um, uh, they had the advantage of the French distribution system uh, required that the national periodical distributors carry uh, small press. 
And so when I referred to ours earlier as being kind of mafioso and scary, um, in France it was the opposite. The, the, the government uh, required that they be distributed. Now, that didn't guarantee that they were sold, of course. You know, you might get massive returns, but at least you had an opportunity to get on newsstands. And so that allowed the French underground cartoonists to get much more successful in terms of circulation and uh, the kind of money they could make. And uh, they became uh, much bigger names in that market than, I would say, almost everybody outside of Crum and maybe Gilbert Shelton, maybe Art Spiegelman in, in, in our crowd. That's pretty amazing. Um, I, I'm curious about one project you did with Stan Lee in the 70s, and that was, was it uh, Comics Books with an X? Yeah, Comics with an X. Yeah, we we actually just a couple of years ago put together a book about that. And, yes. Uh, Stan was kind enough to write an intro for it. Basically, that came out of the fact that early on, um, inexplicably, uh, Stan and I became pen pals. He, uh, uh, I, I, I was a fanboy, of course, growing up with Marvel, and I was surprised when he would answer letters and send me letters, and uh, there was something about me he liked, and he offered me a job several times in the early 70s. Wow. And... Uh, each time, even though I loved Marvels growing up, the idea of moving to New York and working for a company that put out superheroes didn't hold any appeal because I enjoyed what I was doing. I wasn't getting rich fast, but it was part of a movement, consciously. Sure. Wow. Didn't, didn't want to work for the man, even if it was Stan's <laughs> man. No. But then a strange thing happened in the, the summer of 1973. We noticed our, our sales precipitously dropping for, for a combination of reasons. First of all, the, the Supreme Court made a new ruling on obscenity, which basically threw it back into the laps of uh, loca- localities to determine uh, what was objectionable. And that, that, that put the fear of God in uh, most head shops because they were already considered uh, kind of outlaw businesses in most communities, sure. and they feared that if uh, the local citizens could decide what was obscene or not, it would be uh, the undergrounds would be an excuse to put them out of business, even though the real objection was they were selling, you know, drug paraphernalia. Yeah. So we had a lot of shops <clears throat> suddenly say we can't carry comics anymore. Wow. And then at about the same time, we, we noticed in, in a an after-effect of our policy of selling comics on a non-returnable basis, which was very efficient and for us great, but if you were a non-discerning retailer who was just saying, you know, give me a dozen of each, the stuff by Crum and Shelton and the better-selling things would disappear from your rack, but you'd get stuck with the relative dogs, and they'd get, you know, dog-eared and to a point where they were clogging up the rack, and so... All the retailer would see is I've got a lot of unsold comics, sure. and so for separate reason they started uh, declining to to buy, and so I was in a real tough predicament the summer of '73. Just the stand called and offered me a job again, and this time I said let's talk. And so I flew to New York, and uh, basically he wanted me to come and you know be part of the bullpen and 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 edit. Uh, books. I didn't want to do that, so I offered a compromise where I could stay in Wisconsin. I could deliver a magazine to him on a quarterly basis, or no, bi-monthly, I guess it was. 
and do everything um, from where I was, and that would save him, you know, some office space, and uh, I would work at uh, Wisconsin wages instead of New York wages. And okay. Basically, it, it was enough of uh, of the package he wanted that he accepted it, and so that's how this incongruous thing called comics book happened. And for the underground cartoonist, that meant suddenly the page rate quadrupled, and we had newsstand distribution, so an entirely new audience saw what we were doing. So it turned out to be uh, good on some levels. Um, on the other hand, um, one of the requirements that I insisted we have was we could use swear words, we could have you know reasonable amount of nudity and be political, and basically it was... Um, underground comics slightly milder than you'd get in a head shop and for Stan that still caused a problem because one of the other conditions I extracted was we'd get our original art back and we could retain our copyrights and we compromised so that Marvel would hold the copyright for a short period of time but then they would revert but the artwork we got back, and they didn't do that with any other Marvel artists, and that created a backlash, as you can imagine, in in terms of the the regular Marvel artists. When word got out, um, eventually, uh, as I am told by insiders, these guys would come to Stan and say, why are you giving these hippies a better deal than us? <laughs> and uh, so basically, <clears throat> Stan couldn't put the genie back in the bottle, and... Uh, after three issues, he called me and he said, "Look, I got to kill it." Wow! And I already had two more in the can, but he graciously allowed <clears throat> Kitchen Sink to publish them, even though Marvel had paid uh, the contributors. So, all in all, it basically bought me a year of time in which <clears throat> Marvel subsidized me and a lot of my artists. And after a year, the market rebounded and. Uh, the Supreme Court decision didn't really have a significant effect, uh, and neither uh, did the small number of retailers who stopped ordering because of non-return. So without that year of Stan effectively subsidizing um, the operation, I'm not sure we would have survived. It's a life's little irony. Yeah. Well, and also, yeah, I'm glad that, you know, he was cool enough to let you publish the stuff through Kitchen Sink Press. And as you say, um, the, the the decision by the courts, you know, uh, I guess had a lingering effect. And I'm assuming it kind of led to you forming the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund because it is obviously the huge problem of uh, community standards of what's acceptable and what yep. isn't. That is a constant fear of stores and creators in today's environment. Yeah, the CBLDF came somewhat later. Um, sure. The the late 80s, but yes. It, it was always a problem, but it wasn't a problem that was publicized. As I found out later, you'd have incidents in small towns, you know, all over the map, but we wouldn't hear about them because uh, usually it meant this, a small shop would either be intimidated or be driven out of business. And it wasn't until we had the national organization that then we would get word. So, you know, I remember reading in Comics Journal and Amazing Heroes. Uh, it seemed like the the comic book press would, you know, and I'm assuming that was your guys doing in terms of, you know, they would report on some of these uh, cases as they were yep. happening. 
Absolutely. So, and, and it all was... started in, in Chicago, in a suburb of Lansing, as you may know. It was a, a case we called the Friendly Franks case. There was a, a small chain that was in uh, the Chicago area and in Indiana, run by a guy named Friendly Frank. And he had a manager in the Lansing, Illinois shop. And one day, a couple of cops came in and looked over the stuff in his shelves confiscated a, a dozen or 15 or so titles and arrested him for displaying obscene material. Um, and uh, when Frank called me, I mean, I was appalled that that happened. And I was even more appalled when I read the local newspaper account because they quoted one of the officers who was dumb enough to talk to a reporter. <laughs> the, the cop said... Yeah, the place was full of satanic images, even Wonder Woman posters on the wall that were satanic. So clearly, this was a, some kind of religious sect fanatic who, you know, saw the devil and everything. <laughs> and uh, some of the things he confiscated were relatively mild, along with some things that, you know, you could argue, um, certainly it's sexual content, but they weren't obscene by the legal definition. They weren't being sold to minors, and they were displayed, uh, you know, properly. So um, that case upset me so much that that's why I started the Comic Book Legal Defense Fund, to raise money to defend this manager who faced jail time and a significant fine if he had been convicted. Um, and he was convicted at the local level. We had to appeal it to the state to appellate court where we turned it over <clears throat> and at that point there was still money left in the funds so i decided to make it a permanent organization when we started i had no idea that it would still be going to this day yeah i spoke to christina merkler the current president um yeah just a, just a month or two ago she's an old friend uh, we've been doing oh, okay. business oh yeah she's she's been a long time uh, sponsor of of my uh, podcast so uh, she and her husband Cam, yeah, they're they're great people, and, and Fort Wayne, you know, Fort Wayne, not too far when they originally started. They've they've since, I I don't know where they're at. I know they're moving back. Maybe they are moving back to Indiana. I'm not sure, but anyway, uh, no, truly, uh, God, uh, thank God you guys are out there, man. And and I know, are you in a, an advisory capacity? Are you? Have you? I am now. From? Yes, I'm not involved day to day. After running it for 18 years, I yeah. just thought I needed fresh blood. And so I uh, I resigned, and I also encouraged term limits, which the board adopted. So so now basically you can serve up to six years, I think it is, and then it, it, it keeps it cycling. So new people from the industry come in, and it's fresh. Absolutely. Otherwise, my, my fear is, you know, any organization gets run by the same old crowd. It just gets stale. It's not really thinking creatively. Yeah. So. No, I get it. That's Again, it's incredible, and I'm always happy to uh... – Go to the booth at cons and and you know buy some paraphernalia, and uh, absolutely support support the fund, no question. So uh, no incredible work, man, and truly you know better than I do in terms of the thin profit margin there is for these comic stores, and when they do get in trouble like that, how quickly they could be run out of business just you know from the stress and and having to deal with the court costs and everything. So yeah, yep. I can I can't imagine, man. And you know honestly, um, it it's. It's a weird period now 
Um, I fear for new stores. I even have a couple friends that started stores. And I'm like, do you really want to do that now? Because I really think not only in terms of the direct markets challenges, but just in general, brick-and-mortar stores that aren't tied to some sort of chain. And, I yep. mean, I, th- I think like a st- I think of uh, Los Angeles and a store like Meltdown Comics, huge profile. I mean, you know, not only uh, selling books, but becoming kind of a de facto comedy and podcast stage. And all of a sudden, they're out of business, and it's like, wow. I know. I was, uh, I was really sad to see, because I thought they were like a role model. Sure. Hundred percent, man. No, and you know, again, I, I, yeah, it's. I'm shrugging. What else can you say? Um, yeah, I mean, so as someone, uh, you know, and again, you're in an advisory capacity and stuff. Do you keep tabs on today's direct market and what's happening now? I mean, you know, is it? I, I assume you'd have to. Do you? Are you? Yeah, um, Charles Brownstein, the executive director, sends the advisory board members regular updates on what's going on and. We have access to the minutes of the board meetings, and if there's any crisis, uh, those of us who have, uh, you know, kind of a corporate memory or can be helpful, you know, are basically sitting on the bench waiting to uh, to help. <clears throat> so it's uh, it's good to be uh, available. Most of the time, they don't need us anymore, but we're there to be called on, and sometimes. Like, I co-chair the advisory board with Neil Gaiman, and he's the kind of guy, sometimes you just drop his name and it's helpful, or a call from him will be helpful, you know, that sort of sure. a thing. So so there's many ways an advisory board um, can, can be helpful besides just names on a uh, letterhead. Okay, let's take a break and uh, get into our sponsor, this portion of Word Balloon brought to you by Aftershock Comics. The industry's fastest-growing independent publishing company, promoting both new and established comic audiences to read dangerously. They're claiming 2019 as the year of reading dangerously. As a publisher of many of the most talked-about independent titles of the past few years, things like Marguerite Bennett's Animosity, Garth Ennis's A Walk Through Hell, Dark Ark from Cullen Bunn and Juan Doe, and of course Donnie Cates and Baby Teeth, Aftershock is pushing the envelope even further this year with new releases and ongoing series that continue to thrill, chill, and challenge both imaginations and sensibilities. Aftershock is working with top writers and artists and some of the brightest new stars in the creative community. Some of the new titles that are coming out uh, this year are things like Stronghold with Phil Hester and Ryan Kelly, Oberon, a new Supernatural series featuring Ryan Parrott, Dark Red, a vampire living in rural America from Tim Seeley, and things like Out of the Blue and Horde. They're going to cut across all genres to take readers far beyond the comfort zones. Now, in the weeks ahead, we'll be talking to more Aftershock creators about their books, but you don't have to wait. Go to their website. You'll find full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. All right, let's get back into our conversation now on Word Balloon. I also wanted to talk about... um, your various histories of comics as well. We we mentioned the underground comics history that you co-wrote. Um, you also co-wrote a Harvey Kurtzman uh, biography and yep. uh, a one on Al Cap, certainly. Um, and now, you know, I, I really want to read the Kurtzman one. I haven't had a chance to read that. I did read the Al Cap one. I was telling you before we started recording that uh, – and also I know that you published a lot of the Little Abner uh, collections through Kitchen yeah. City Press as well. <clears throat> So I planned, know, yeah, I planned to publish the entire Little Abner Library, which would have been, believe it or not, fifty-four volumes. Wow! I got literally halfway, twenty-seven volumes before we had to give it up. But, wow! Uh, so around what year were you in when you when you had to give it up? 
Uh, basically, when kitchen sink press went under in 1999. Um, so I would have kept with it. I mean, it, it's a strip I loved. And even though Cap himself uh, left a lot to be desired, to put it mildly, yeah. I, still, I still think to this day he was a genius cartoonist and satirist. No question. Just, uh, you know, he, uh, as, as a human being, uh, had some serious deficiencies. Well, that's why the, uh, the biography that, that you co-wrote is so fascinating. Because and, and ever since reading it, I've been scouring YouTube and, uh, you know, I have uh, the channel Decades that runs the old Dick Cavett show. And there's an episode that uh, Cap was on. He was contemplating running for Senate against Ted Kennedy. I don't know how serious right. he was. But, uh, yeah, no. And also, it really the great thing about the Cap book is it gives you this uh, insider look of how the comic strip business worked. And so that was really fascinating. But you're right. The guys, I mean, first of all, as a personality, the guy was everywhere. I mean, I, I found old-time radio panel shows where he's holding his own with very erudite yeah. and funny people. He's, and yeah. He's the only cartoonist, certainly of his era, and I would argue a cartoonist, period. You know, you, you might say, well, Spiegelman, it's hard to come up with anybody even close to Cap because, as you said, he not only did a daily strip that was hugely popular, um, he was on uh, radio shows, TV shows. For a while, he had his own TV show, his wow. own radio show, his own newspaper column of commentary. He was one of the most frequent guests on uh, Johnny Carson's Tonight Show. He was the only cartoonist besides Walt Disney to have a theme park. Um, you can just go right, on yes. and on with this guy. He was yeah. uh, all, all over the map. And... Uh, and when you consider that he started out uh, handicapped, he had, he had one leg. He lost a leg as a child from a, an accident. And uh, he was uh, able to accomplish an amazing amount. He also was smart enough, savvy enough, and ballsy enough to confront his the syndicate at a time when he was already making a lot of money. And uh, he basically bit the hand that fed him by demanding a huge raise. And the syndicate uh, naturally uh, resisted. So he sued them in 1947 for, I think, $14 million in $1947. Wow. And basically, um, at the time he was suing him, and that alone made headlines, he had a strip that he created in Little Abner, that the syndicate was forced to syndicate every day, in which it was about a cartoonist who was chained to his drawing board with one thin bulb hanging over his head, and he was starving. And he was working for an outfit called the Sweat Blood Syndicate, or the Squeeze Blood Syndicate. So, poor United Feature Syndicate. Imagine, they had to pay this guy every week while he is mercilessly uh, satirizing them. So after a while, basically, he won. He got concessions. He got a bigger slice of the pie than any cartoonist before and possibly since. And uh, he also was able to get merchandise rights that normally the syndicate would go out and create merchandise. So he was able to then give that to a company that he and his brother started. And uh, after that, all the merchandise went through him. And a year later, he created the Shmoo. <laughs> which was um, the, one of the largest, most successful, you know, uh, things of all time. Uh, 
1948 to the early 50s, Shmoo was huge. And instead of dividing it with the syndicate, like most cartoonists, um, he and his brothers kept it all. So he was very, very savvy. Wow. And if he could have just uh, kept his pants zipped, you know, he would have uh, had a much more successful and lengthy career. But he had problems with women, as you know from reading the book. Yeah, it's fascinating. And honestly, in today's Me Too uh, environment, I think, uh, I mean, this was always going on, casting couch kind of things in Hollywood. Uh, I don't want to uh, tip, um, I, I want people to read the book, but yeah, he was. He, he had several uh, cases against him. And in that classic old boy way, there were people, and I, I was just shocked at the players, um, should we say it, or how would you prefer it? No, uh, it's okay. Go ahead. Okay. If people are curious, they can go buy the book. Sure. Okay. Well, you know, yeah, it was. Um, you know, he would he would show up at campuses, and much like there being radio shows and TV shows online, there are copies of albums where um, he was a he was a liberal, and he took on things like McCarthyism uh, in the in the fifties. But then I guess the hippies kind of turned him off uh, in terms of. Uh, who represented liberals uh, during the hippie years? So he kind of—he didn't became... see them as liberal. He saw them as uh, lawbreakers who never bathed <laughs> and who were violent. Um, Got to remember, uh, Camp uh, lived a stone's throw from Harvard University, and he was uh, basically intermingling with uh, academics and uh, famous intellectuals who were based at Harvard. And uh, when the protests against Vietnam War started, um, there was an incident where the president of Harvard was in a car and hippies surrounded the car, apparently shook it and threw rocks at him. And, uh, you know, it was uh, no doubt an unnerving incident for the college president. And uh, not all protesters were well behaved. Um, but Cap, once that incident occurred, he he never changed his mind about all hippies being basically evil, misguided, um, uh, and he used the power of the pen to attack them mercilessly starting in the late 60s. Um, well, and the, there's that classic scene of uh, John Lennon and Yoko in bed and Al Cap accosting them, and he's yep. one of those people that... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, although I have to say, to be fair, John Lennon and Yoko invited him knowing it would be a publicity stunt for both of them. And Lennon egged him on. And if if you ever see, there's an un, an uncut version of that meeting where Lennon is also saying some pretty snarky things to Cap. But, but yes, Cap's behavior is unforgivable. And the worst moment for me was uh, he's talking to Lennon and ignoring Yoko. And at a certain point, even though she's laying on the bed next to John, Cap says to Lennon, how can you sleep with that thing? He calls oh her. God. Thing. Wow. Yeah. So he found her repulsive and, uh, you know, Lennon only slightly less. <laughs> Wow, and then it gets uglier uh, because... Well, the, yeah. the irony, actually, after he left that uh, sleep-in, he flew back to Boston seated on an airplane next to Timothy Leary, who he was pals with. <laughs> uh, but then Timothy Leary was kind of a media whore, too, who uh, you know was happy to hang out with all kinds of celebrities. I don't think he was a terribly principled guy in retrospect, but at the time, they were an unlikely pair. Hilarious. Uh, wow. Well, you reveal that, uh, you know, Cap would go to these campuses 
and uh, the campus newspaper would send a young female reporter, and he, you know, sexually harassed like four of them. Not, not a reporter. No, he oh, had me. Excuse to uh, interview uh, co-eds. He claimed he was putting together a, a TV show for CBS TV. Wow. Called, called Sex on Campus. And so he had an advance man who went around to the schools a week or two ahead of time and said, you know, Mr. Cap, at your university would like to interview co-eds. Well, it was always co-eds, you know. Jeez, wow. He, he never interviewed young men. But sure. his, his advance man knew the type of young woman that Cap liked, and so he would basically be introduced to like a, I'm not sure exactly, but maybe a, uh, p- politically active young women, you know, who he would then pick out three supposedly at random, but they would all be good looking, and then they would set up appointments. And uh, so Cap would have uh, a hotel room. They would come to it. When they came in, he would lock the door behind them and turn on a reel-to-reel tape recorder and begin interviewing them about sex because he was a famous guy, they, you know, yes, they thought they were flattered to be involved. But sure. as the questioning got more and more personal, at a certain point, he would stop the tape recorder and he would say to them something like, would you like your parents to hear what you just told me? Wow. Basically, getting, he's talking to 18-year-olds, right? Yeah. Um, who would panic because suddenly they realized they were being blackmailed into having sex. So the only way he eventually was caught was one of the young women at the University of Alabama ran to the window, managed to open it and scream, and a campus cop heard and came and rescued her, and they escorted him to the airport and told him he was unwelcome (laughs) at the university. But no charges were pressed. And he still wouldn't have been caught, except one of the women wrote an anonymous letter to the columnist, Jack Anderson. Um, and um, at that time, Jack Anderson, who was a famous uh, political columnist who was basically entirely focused on the Washington, D.C. events, he had a young unknown uh, reporter working for him at the time named Brett Hume and he opened the mail and they saw this unsigned letter claiming that Al Cap was accosting women on campus and Anderson had no real interest uh, in a sex story because it wasn't really political but at a certain point Hume kept reading that letter and he wondered if it were true it ought to be exposed and so he got Anderson to agree to have him delve into it. And uh, so he did a very astute thing. He knew if he had called the University of Alabama, they would have denied that the event happened. They wouldn't want bad press. So he called the campus cops, who were not experienced talking to reporters, and he said, hey, I heard you took El Cap to the airport at such and such a date. And they said, yeah, we got that bastard. We put him on a plane, told him not to come back. Wow. So then Brit Hume called the president of the campus and said, look, your security has confirmed that there was an incident with Al Cap. They still didn't want to cooperate, but then he said, look, we want to prevent this from happening at other campuses. I promise that nothing you say will be used to embarrass you or your campus. 
So all he asked was to be able to talk to the same women that appointments had been set up with. And he followed El Cap's tour, because he had been touring campuses all around the country for, for a long time. And he retraced the steps. And he was able to get uh, something close to a dozen, I think, women to uh, tell their story, and a good number of them to sign a legal affidavit. And uh, and even then, Cap might not have been exposed if he had been a little bit savvier, perhaps, because um, once Bert Hume had written the story, uh, Jack Anderson, his boss, said, look, we got to give Cap a chance to defend himself here. And so they called, they were in Washington, D.C., they called Cap in Boston, and uh, as soon as they said they were considering the story, Cap uh, ignored his lawyer's advice, jumped on the first plane to Washington, and came into Jack Anderson's office, and he misplayed his hand because he did not know that Jack Anderson was a Mormon, a very religious man, very family-oriented. And so he opened up by saying to Jack, he presumed he was the same as Cap, and he said, Jack, you know how it is when you go around to these campuses, the young girls, they're all over you. Wow. And that so disgusted Anderson, that he decided, okay, this is not an overtly political story, but I'm running it. And he did. And uh, that was the beginning of the end for Cap. That's amazing, man. Yeah. And um, well, and that's the thing. I, I, I wonder, and I even told you off the air, you can make the comparison to Cosby and his importance to comedy. Uh, Cap, like, you know, like we said, an incredibly important figure in comic strip history. Uh, all the things he did, less good lessons to be learned from his business acumen. Horrible person. So yep. I just, yeah, your opinion. What what do we do? Because I, you know, that people south of I'm in my fifties. People south of our age probably don't even know Al Cap. You know. Yeah, I think that's safe to say. Um, well, there are a number of parallels. I mean, I know people who won't see a Woody Allen movie because sure. of the accusation against them, and that yeah. hasn't even really been proven. Um, yeah. You know, how, where do you draw the line? Do you never see a movie that the Weinstein Company made? <laughs> you know, Kevin Spacey's body of work? Yeah, yeah. Exactly. No, I understand. So for me, I'm, I mean, I'm able to separate the man from the work. And sure. I, I'm, I'm happy to put the spotlight on Cap's negative behavior, but I also can go back and read a little Abner and enjoy it for what it is. Um, not everyone can do that. Understood. Yeah, no, I, I find it fascinating. And again, this is, I think, one of the things that our, our current environment and, and people in this environment have to make those decisions. But yeah, it's uh, really the book is incredible. And again, I knew about Little Abner as a kid, probably saw several of your uh, your collections uh, growing up in the in the 70s into the 80s uh, on, on bookshelves at places like Crocs and Brentano's back in the day. Sure. Uh, so yeah, I uh, but it was really shocking, and uh, yeah, I, I really I can't, I can't recommend it enough. It's an it's an incredible book, so uh, people should definitely seek that out. Um, can I ask a real? Fa- I, I know I'm exceeding my 45 minutes. Can I ask you real quick about Eisner? Sure. Yeah, you know, honestly, I I, f- I feel very fortunate. I got to meet him. He came to the University of Chicago 
uh, interviewed by Neil Gaiman, and they had a humanities weekend, and Spiegelman was there, ah. Scott, Mac- Scott McCloud was there. Early I heard 2000s. about that. That was quite the crowd. Yeah, it was really impressive, and, and it was great because it was a university atmosphere. So after their Q&A on stage, they hung out in the lobby, and anyone could just walk up and talk to Neil and talk to Eisner. And it was so exciting. And I know I had uh, several uh, spirit uh, collections, both uh, from Kitchen Sink and even the Warren spirit uh, uh, previous to, uh, to your publishing, uh, Will's stuff. Um, how, did that, how did that relationship with Will begin? In a very unexpected way, <clears throat> I was invited by Phil Suling to my first convention in 1971 in New York. Sure. And I was relatively unknown then. I mean, I had only been publishing for um, I think a little over a year, maybe. And I was basically just a fanboy. I was looking through boxes of comics when uh, a French comics historian named Maurice Horn saw my badge, and he said... Oh, Mr. Kitchen, uh, Will Eisner, he is looking for you. Wow. And I, and I said, you must be mistaken. <laughs> I don't know Mr. Eisner. I can't imagine why he would be looking for me. And he said, no, 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 I, come with me. So he took me to this private suite where Will was, and uh, it turned out that Eisner was fascinated with the underground comic scene. And he started peppering me with questions about how they're distributed and how the royalty system works and all these things he had vaguely heard about. He wanted confirmed. He wanted more detail. And while he was peppering me with questions, I was trying to, you know, the fanboy in me was wanting to ask him about the old days, but he had very little patience for that. And it was the first lesson I learned um, that he was an insatiably curious guy who was not stuck in the past, but always looking at new trends and wanting to be part of it. And so uh, it was a very unlikely meeting. I I actually drew a picture later of this meeting of uh, basically a balding guy in a three-piece suit um, and me with hair down to mid-back and bell-bottom jeans and a scruffy beard. And as Will would say years later, we both smoked pipes but with different substances. (laughs) But the one thing we had in common was a love of comics. And so after that meeting, we stayed in touch. And uh, before long, I was bold enough to ask about reprinting the spirit. And before I knew it, I was his publisher and uh, published every one of his graphic novels uh, right up until 1999. And then when Kitchen Sink Press went under, he asked me to be his literary agent, and so I represented him on subsequent books until he died in 2005. And I still act as uh, a literary agent and the art agent for the family. That's great, and truly, I'm glad that, that uh, you and the Eisner estate are making that stuff still available. And uh, also, I've loved over the years... Uh, the various tribute uh, publications when others have done the spirit, um, yeah, I, I really what a, I mean, really groundbreaking work. But then also his subsequent graphic novels as well, The Dreamer and Contract with God and uh, and the like. I mean, yeah, it's a, it's a great body of work, and that he was still vital all the way till the end. That's well, you know, that's great. Yeah, and again, younger listeners may not be aware that he basically started the graphic novel revolution. Um, 
You cannot say uh, in, in, uh, in academic terms he was the very first, but he did the first successful graphic novel with Contract with God, and that spawned basically everything that's come since because contemporaries like Alan Moore and Frank Miller and uh, Spiegelman and others uh, followed in quick succession because it was exciting to see that, you got to remember, until Contract with God, everything was the floppy. It was the comic book. Sure. To have, to have a comic with a square spine you could put on a shelf with real books, that was psychologically very important. And it also broke open the format. It allowed you to tell a story that was 150 pages long and not 32 pages long. Um, it, it revolutionized our business. No question. And... Uh... That's that's pretty amazing that uh, you know you got to be a part of it. Another thing I loved about uh, the Spirit Quarterly that you put out was uh, Shop Talk at the back, and um, I have the collection. Uh, it's sitting on my shelf. I'm looking at it right now. I also have the wonderful documentary that uh, John Cook made oh, that sure. in- that included uh, the audio. Uh, actual interviews and uh, uh, being an audio guy, you know, I'll tell you, man, I, I it's you appreciate well, you, you appreciate the nuances sure. of the conversation even more so than than the transcribed versions. And yet, oh my God, they're so great. You you hear the kind of bitter irony that Jack Kirby feels about uh, Stan Lee and uh, yeah. you know, great conversation with Phil Suling, great conversations with Kniff, his his uh, creative, I you know. Um, yep role model i mean yeah yep. great stuff man oh I, I love all of that and also it's just been great to talk to various creators who knew him better and that like you said he generally was interested in what was happening now and really wanted to learn and and, and hear about you know the current comic market and what was going on I, that's fantastic yep. yeah yeah he was a very forward thinker which is which is rare at a time when his contemporaries had basically retired, he was still doing great things. Uh, it was uh, it was almost uh, 88 years old when he died, and he was ready to start a new project. Wow. My friend Alex Savick uh, helped him out with uh, that little short story that he did where the spirit met the escapist. That's right. The, I remember that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that was really neat. Um, that was the last thing he did. Wow. Unbelievable, man. So what are you doing these days? What, uh, what, what, uh, what keeps you busy? Well, I'm still an agent. I represent a number of uh, cartoonists and writers. I package books. I have an imprint at Dark Horse called Kitchen Sink Books as opposed sure. to Kitchen Sink Press. Okay. And with a partner, John Lind, we do two or three books a year for them. The most recent one was the Deluxe Contract with God which had one volume of the original pencils and another companion volume with all the final inks with a lot of commentary. So if you're a real student of the graphic novel form or some of my guys, you get to see literally the very first steps of it and how he changed his own ideas and, and altered many of his original pencil concepts, how he omitted some pages. It's, it's, it's a rare insight because very, very seldom... In fact, I can't think of another occasion where these things survived on a classic, and you could show that progression. So we enjoyed putting that together. Uh, right now I'm working on a, a, a 3D portfolio. I'm intrigued by 3D. And my daughter and I just uh, co-wrote a book on uh, Harrison Cady, who is a 
kind of a forgotten cartoonist who was huge in the early part of the 1900s, doing amazing centerfolds and illustrations for Life magazine. I think if you see it, you'll understand why I'm excited about it. But like a lot of things in the culture, people die and the population moves on, and not everyone is remembered like Elvis or Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> so sure. <laughs> part, part of my job, I feel, is to help restore the reputation or legacy of forgotten cartoonists. Well, I'm glad you're making these volumes, really, because uh, you're right. And I and I think I, I this is one of my constant conversations on this podcast, that uh, pre-1990, it seemed like by 1990, everything was pretty much being videotaped and, and you know has been digitized since and everything. But it really does seem like at least the first two-thirds and maybe even a little more, maybe the first three-quarters of the, the 20th century, you know, there's still kind of some murky spots, and you need people to kind of verify, no, this is the way it happened. And, you know, and of course, you know, these people, as they pass away, it's hard to get the straight story these days. So I, I really do appreciate what you're doing with these histories. And, uh, yeah, well, keep thanks. doing it. Absolutely. Keep in mind, you know, the podcasts are also a history, and they should be preserved, and uh, you're, you're a part of that, too. Oh, thank you, man. That's Truly, that's my ambition. Again, growing up on uh, Comics Journal and Amazing Heroes and being a radio guy. I work at CBS Radio. That's my day job in Chicago. And, um, yeah, I just felt like I, I, it's really important and vital to hear the creators as they're making it and what, what's on their minds as they're making it and stuff and have that kind of record. Because sometimes, you know, years later, there's, you know, sometimes rose-colored glasses kind of clogged memory. <laughs> So, and you know, I meant to ask real fast. Um, did the image guys, when they were striking out, did anyone like of that group ever reach out to you or any of the other? Uh, do you know of any other underground guys that maybe the image guys um, reached out to? Well, it's another podcast, but actually, when Kitchen <laughs> Sink was struggling in the late 90s, yeah, there was an opportunity to have been uh, acquired or have uh, one of the image partners invest. And it didn't happen, but we came tantalizingly close. So that's another big what if. Wow. Pretty interesting. Yeah, you know something? We exceeded our time, so I, I will let you go. When there's something new, I will be searching uh, Diamond as well. I hope you will come back and we can talk more because, uh, yeah, you've had an incredible career. And, uh, it's yeah, a I'd be happy to, John, anytime. Thank it's you very been, much. It's well, been a pleasure. Can't tell you how much I enjoyed talking to Dennis Kitchen. What an interesting guy and really glad he shared our story with us here on Word Balloon today. Hope you enjoyed the show. Brought to you by the League of Word Balloon listeners via Patreon. If you want to subscribe to Word Balloon, do you like what you hear on Word Balloon? Is it is it worth your time? Do you think it's uh, worth a dollar a month? Is it worth the price of a comic book a month? If so, you can go to patreon.com slash wordballoon and subscribe. Word Balloon is free. It'll always be free. But if you want to help the cause out, that's where you go. Thank you very much, League of Word Balloon listeners. And Word Balloon also brought to you by Aftershock Comics, who are claiming... This year, as the year of reading dangerously, they want people to get out of their comfort zone and check out some new comics, and uh, they are coming through with some amazing titles, established titles like Animosity from Marguerite Bennett, and A Walk Through Hell from Garth Ennis and Jimmy's Bastards, Dark Ark from Cullen Bunn and Juan Doe, and Baby Teeth from Donny Cates. Well, they're going to push things even further this year with new titles on the way like Stronghold from Phil Hester and Ryan Kelly, Oberon, a new Supernatural series from Ryan Parrott, Dark Red from Tim Seeley, and Out of the Blue and Horde, just to name a few. 
In the weeks ahead, we'll be talking to more Aftershock creators about their books. But you don't have to wait. You will find a full slate of incredible books with great genres waiting for you. Full story descriptions, preview pages, and the diamond codes on these books to order through your local shop at AftershockComics.com. Thanks a lot for listening. Uh, More great stuff coming along in February. Don't forget it as well. Uh, Lots of great stuff already happening here in January. Great conversations with Brad Meltzer and Tom King in the previous weeks. And uh, a hospital Q&A that I did while I was uh, laid up and uh, answered listeners' questions. Hope you enjoyed those episodes as well. Looking forward to giving you more great Word Balloon in the month of February. Until next time, Word Balloon is a copyright feature of Shaky Productions. Copyright 2019.